Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Come on. Good job. Man, we love our worship team. You guys are amazing. Man, I feel, how many of you feel Pentecostal this morning? <laughs> got a little Pentecostal in us. You guys, I love you guys. Man, we got the best church in the world, don't we? I'm so glad you guys made it here this morning. So will you give me about five hours to share a few thoughts with you? Uh, before I get into my, my talk this morning, I just want to celebrate another birthday here today. Sherry Martin, uh, she turns 32. And uh, we want to bless her. Sherry, can you stand? We love Sherry. She's a part of our family. So faithful. And we love you so much. Yeah, how long have you been in the church? 16 years. And you've been so faithful. You're a rock and such a blessing, not only to our family, but to our church. So thank you. Thank you, Sherry. And uh, my, Ken- my Kenzie, my niece, Kenzie, can you stand up? It is your birthday, too. I love you, sweetheart. She's absolutely amazing. Super smart, just like her uncle. All right. Oh, if you could turn into your Bibles at John chapter 9. Why do I have to make everything about me, right? John chapter 19. If you could turn uh, John 19, 38. And uh, I want to talk to you. Actually, I was going to talk to you about uh, gratitude today. Um, but I'm going to do that next week. I'm going to talk about something else. So we're in our new sermon series, Easter for the People. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about six things that we can take up. So I hope you're excited. It's going to be, it's going to be really good. But we're going to go to John 19, verse 38. And uh, John writes, if you need to bring your Bible, we have uh, the text up behind, behind me, I believe. He writes, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, he's Nick at night. Bad joke Sunday. I love cheesy jokes, come on. So he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and, and, and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. In the Roman metric system, this would be about 100 pounds. So maybe for us as Americans, it would be roughly 80, 80-ish pounds. So they took the body of Jesus, and they bound, bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. We talked about gardens last week. Gardens figure prominently. Uh, in the New Testament, Old Testament, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was closed at hand, they laid Jesus there. So it, this is a moment, this is leading into the seventh day. Uh, we have the intersection of, angel, of, of ages, the collision of ages. Uh, space and time, heaven and earth are coming together. John is hinting at this. Uh, gardens, if you were living in the ancient Near East and you heard uh, like the, 
Genesis 1 creation story about God making or building the world in the cosmos uh, and then God building a garden, you would have understood that God was building a temple so he could fill his, his presence with. And so John is hinting in this passage leading into the seventh day where God rested, that heaven and earth was coming together. God was resting. In other words, God was taking charge. Uh, heaven is intersecting with our earth. Righteousness and justice and peace is everywhere. Gardens signified new creation. Can I get an amen? So this is Easter language. So what do we do? What's our response in Easter? And I want to do my best to answer that question. So if you could bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, we thank you for uh, being with us this morning. Lord, I thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you that uh, you are, you're in this place. We love you, Jesus. We love your presence. Uh, we love your goodness. Uh, we love just everything that you've done for us. And we lift you up in this place. And everyone said, amen, amen. All right, turn to your neighbor and say, man, I'm so glad you made it this morning. All right, you know the drill. Turn to your second choice and say, man, I, I, mean, I just love Steph Curry and the Warriors. Come on, come on. Come on. Uh, do we have any Blazer fans here? Okay, really? Okay. All right. Um, the Warriors won last night, right? But they're up 3-0? Right? Are they up 3-0? Anyways, I, I heard to stop it. All right. I'll stop it. Um, hey, so this week, I see my boys had their birthday yesterday. I have twin boys. They turned six. If you're a parent, isn't it crazy how time flies, right? So my boys turned six. We had a great day yesterday. But earlier this week, my son Wesley came to me, and uh, man, he was just looking like a, a little G. I mean, this is the first time that I, that I he slicked back his hair. Uh, he brushed his teeth by himself. Right? He even told me he flossed his teeth. And uh, uh, he, he smelled really good. And so I asked him, why do you smell so good? Like he had like lotion all over his body. And he got it like his new uh, white, white high tops. Unfortunately, they were like on the wrong foot. So it was kind of like a penguin or I don't know, kind of looking like that. But what was really funny, he got on, uh, my wife just got him a, real, a, a nice shirt. It's a button shirt. And uh, he didn't start with the top button. Everyone said the top button. And so he started kind of in the middle. And so his whole shirt was, was crooked. Like, his shoes were crooked, his shirt was crooked, but he smelled good, looked like a G, you know, and I was excited for him. It was going to be a really good day. It was a sunny day. I asked him if he liked a girl. He kind of smiled, but he didn't tell me. I'm like, you're six. You can't like anybody until you're 42, okay? You can't date anybody until you're 38, all right? That's just, anyways, um, so I had to make a long story short. Um, I, I had to, like, totally redo his outfit. I had to start at the top button. Again, everyone say the top button. And I remember I was, I, as I started buttoning his shirt, I remember I think it was Mark Francie about a year ago used this as an illustration. Like, if you don't get the top button right, like, everything else is, is crooked, right? If you don't start with the top button, if you don't get that straight, uh, you're not going to get anything else straight with your outfit. And I think there's a lot of crooked Christians, not crooks, right, but crooked Christians because they don't got the top button right. So what's that top button, Chris? What? What, what's that thing that we need to get right, which will make everything else in our life straight? If you want to straighten your life out, if you want God to re-landscape your life with justice and peace, 
and come on, righteousness. If you want God to put your life back to right, how many of you want that? Okay, four of you. If you want God's blessing, if you want God to work through you, what's that top button that we need to think straight about, that we need to get straight, um, that we need to make sure that we're um, embodying in our life? And I'm just going to get the cat out of the bag. I felt like the Holy Spirit told me I needed to share this with the church two days ago. So I scratched my message, and I felt like the Holy Spirit wanted me to tell you that it's generosity. You get generosity right, you get everything else straight. You don't get generosity right, you don't get it straight. Everything else in your life will be crooked, right? And I don't like crooked. I'm the guy who likes everything just nice and straight, right? So if you want God to make your life straight, if you want God to put everything right, then uh, we got to embody generosity. So how does that relate to our story in John chapter 19? It's fascinating. I read this like 18 times this week. John, um, excuse me, Joseph of Arimathea and Nick at night comes to the, the burial place. They take the body of Jesus and, and Nicodemus has 100 pounds of spices, if, if, if you remember, Shane, he preached a message out of John 12 two weeks ago, right? And it's about Mary of Bethany. Bethany literally means in the Greek, house of the poor. So within this framework, she, you know the story, she's surrounded by disciples. Jesus is, is sitting down, and she takes this expensive nard of oil. She breaks it, and she washes the feet of Jesus. And all the disciples grumbled and complained about this extravagance. Yet this hundred pounds that Nicodemus uses for the body of Jesus is 100 times more than what Mary used in John chapter 12. And it got people grumbling. <laughs> so what do you think is going to happen with 100 pounds? People are going to go crazy. People don't understand this kind of extravagance. Nick, 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 come on. You could have used 20 pounds for the body of Jesus. Why not 35? Why not 10? Why not 15? This, the quality and the quantity of this expensive gift or this extravagant use of spices on the body of Jesus is fit for a king. Why would Nicodemus be so generous with the body of Jesus? Well, remember, he's Nick at night. And if you go all the way back to Genesis, uh, excuse me, John chapter 3, uh, verse 1 through verse 17, Nick at night, he's a Pharisee, he's a ruler, he's a teacher of Israel. He goes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, hey, what are you up to? And uh, if you've been in Sunday school or you grew up in the church, you know this, this Bible verse, but we've domesticated it. It's such an extravagant verse. Jesus said he's defining his mission or his raison d'etre and he says, God what he so loved the world that he gave. Everyone say gave. He gave his only son. I think something transformational happened in Nicodemus's heart. Not only did I, I think God did something in his heart as he was listening to Jesus and Jesus was describing uh, what he was doing in his public ministry, but I think for two and a half years, Nicodemus was watching the practical embodiment of extravagance through the life of Jesus. And I think the reason why Nicodemus went to the burial place and brought 100 pounds of spices is because that's what Christians do. Man, I, I thought we were a Pentecostal church this morning. Come on. 
That's what Christians do. Why do Christians live extravagantly? Why do they practice extravagant generosity? Well, because that's who Jesus is. And because that's who Jesus is, and because that's how Jesus fleshed out the love of God in his ministry, John chapter 10, he was telling everybody, hey, I'm the good shepherd, and I'm going to lay my life down for the sheep. Come on. John chapter 13, Jesus looks to his disciples. Peter, my gosh, Peter, he says it to Peter, James, and John. These guys who want to call down thunder on people, who are a little bit dysfunctional, maybe have a little psychopathic like streak in them. What does he say? He says, hey, guys, I'm going to love you to the very end. And I think when you get in touch with the heart of God and you, you see the practical embodiment of the love of the Father, you start to live extravagantly. Your generosity is defined by extravagance. But generosity, let me just say this really quick. Generosity is not just giving something. Everybody gives something. Five of you apparently give something. Okay, come on. We all give stuff, right? Like you're going to see somebody on the side of the road and maybe you feel compelled by Jesus to maybe stop and give them some food. Christian, that's what Christians do, right? Ad hoc generosity. In the moment, we're going to serve the hell out of the city. Got to wake some people up here this morning. So that's important that we, man, it's important that we do that. But generosity is not just giving something. Come on, that's just, no. Generosity is restructuring your entire life around the extravagance of Jesus. Everybody, everybody gives something. Most people don't restructure their entire life. Their time, their energy, their resources, their money, everything they have, their life, their heart, their mind, their will, their body, around the extravagance of Jesus. Why do Christians, why are Christians summons not to be possessed by their possessions, not to be consumed by consumerism? Why are we called to live extravagantly when it comes to our money and our time and our resources? It's because this is who Jesus is. I, I read a book, and I like to read like eight or nine books a week. You guys like to read? Okay. So I, I love uh, Thomas Cahill. He's not a believer, but he's a great historian. And uh, he, he wrote, and I'm going to read an excerpt out of his book, How the Irish Saved Civilization. And if you're Irish, say amen. amen. Right? So he's talking about St. Patrick and his life and uh, just really writes about a lot of biographical stuff about St. Patrick. And he writes about a convert of St. Patrick. So this, this woman named Bridget, everyone say Bridget. Uh, she was uh, converted by St. Patrick. And she ruled as high abbess of this immense monastery, uh, which was renowned for its hospitality. There are a lot of legends about Bridget, um, and a lot of it's kind of myth, but the historicity is, is, is accounted for by most scholars. And uh, this excerpt, this is Thomas Cahill. He describes this beautiful life of Bridget. At her conversion, he writes, her father, an extremely wealthy man, was appalled to find his daughter giving away his stores to beggars. Sounds really Christian, right? Quite out of control, he threw Bridget into the back of his chariot, screaming, it is neither out of kindness nor honor that I take you for a ride. I'm going to sell you, this is roughly the fifth century, I'm going to sell you to the king of Leinster to grind his corn. Arriving at the king's enclosure, the father unbuckled his sword, leaving it in the chariot beside Bridget, so that out of respect, he could approach the king unarmed. Good strategy. 
No sooner had, had the father gone off than a leper appeared, begging Bridget for her help. Since the only thing handy was her father's sword, she gave it to him. Meanwhile, the father was making his offer to the king, who must have smelled like something's fishy, something's not right, and insisted on meeting the girl before accepting uh, this father's offer. And when the king and the father came out to the chariot, the father noticed immediately that his sword was missing and demanded to know where it was. When Bridget told him, he flew into a wild rage and began to beat her. The king had to, t had to tell him to stop and ask why she gave away her father's sword. And this is what she said. I love this. If I had the power, answered Bridget, I would steal all your royal wealth and give it to Christ's brothers and sisters. The king quickly declined the father's kind offer. Because this is in his words, your daughter is too good for me. It was her Christian faith made practical by radical generosity which was strong enough, according to Cahill, to deprive a tyrant of his sword, unman a king, and empower the powerless. She was too good for the king. And these are my words. She astonished the Irish world with generosity. And this is what Christians are summoned to do. This, this year, I want us as Christians to astonish this city with the extravagant love of Jesus. Why, Chris? Well, because this is what Christians do. Why do Christians do this? Because this is who Jesus is. Now, you might not understand that with this Easter egg hunt that we had, we reached over maybe 25, 30,000 people. We had almost 200 people who gave their life to Jesus. We had 300 people who sacrificed their time and their energy to put on this event. Mark Thornton is the flippin' man. How he organized all of this, gave his heart and his soul to make this happen. Five years ago, Pastor Connie, how many of you love Pastor Connie? She came up to me, and it's funny, but God speaks to me through my mom and through my wife, okay? So... She came to me, and at that time, we had uh, Easter egg hunts here at the church. And she said, Chris, why don't we go to the new park? And let's just, man, let's just take this Easter egg hunt and just make it big. And uh, so I remember thinking, okay, maybe we can do that. And so we made the decision to go to the park. And we just started thinking about what we can do. And the Holy Spirit began to talk to us. And we made a decision that this event, we were going to do this event with no strings attached. That we were simply going to bless the community. If no stinking person came to our church because of this event, we're okay with that. Because our relationship with this city is not transactional. Hey, we're only going to serve you if you do something back for us. No, our relationship with this city is transformational. We're going to bless you. You might hate on us, but we're still going to bless you. And we're going to continue to bless the hell out of you. And we believe that through our generosity, heaven's going to come and transform and re-landscape the Treasure Valley. So that's why some of you have asked, man, why do you have stinking bunnies flying out of the sky? They might hurt themselves. Yes, they might hurt themselves, but I pray, okay? Why are you so extravagant? Why do you have uh, vending machines? Why do you have 100,000 eggs why do you put so much effort and money and time to do this with little return this is what christians do
Why? Because this is who Jesus is. Man, we embody radical generosity. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking to the church of Corinth. This might be, and I'm not making a political statement at all, this might be the greatest transfer of wealth in human history. Paul's going to sum it up in a short theological phrase. Are you ready for it? He says, for you know the grace. Everyone say grace. Grace, and this is a crude way of saying it. Grace is, man, it's, it's something you don't deserve. You're not here because, man, you're the happiest person. You're not here because you're the best person. You're not here because of your talents and your beauty and your strength and your power. No, and you might have all of that. You're here and you're a part of God's family and your sins have been forgiven because Jesus really loves you. That's grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, though he was rich, this is the language of embodiment, this is incarnational theology, though he was rich, let me just say this really quick, Paul is now talking to the church of Corinth. Heaven has come to Corinth. That's the greatest transfer of wealth. Paul makes it very clear that, hey, guys, Corinthians, you guys were uh, uh, nobodies, and now you're somebodies, and now you have all the status in the world. You have God. You have the ages. You have all the glory in the world, but you now have a pride problem. And they were kind of being reticent about their prior commitment to giving to the Jerusalem church. So I just love how Paul, Paul just comes in and says, hey, guys, remember the grace that you received. You aren't somebodies. There's no such thing as a somebody on the planet Earth. We're all nobodies. Can I get an amen? That though he was rich, he continues, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I love this pattern, that he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So you have a rich, poor, rich pattern. It's funny, the American story is all about, hey, rags to riches, right? I mean, come on, Drake, he says it all the time. I was at the bottom and now we're here, right? Don't, don't listen to the rest of the song, okay? I've never heard it. Mark Francie listens and he tells me. So pray for Mark. He keeps me up to date to pop culture, right? So we're, as Americans, we're, we obsess over social mobility, right? We got to climb the ladder. It's almost like this defiance. We got to defy these social arrangements. And, and yes, I understand why people think that way. But the, the gospel, man, goes in an opposite direction. And what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is the Christian story in microcosm. What is it? It's not rags to riches. It's riches to rags. To riches. My gosh. It's a completely different story than the American story that underlies the subconscious or the soul of every American. Man, we live this. We breathe this. In our, man, in our, it's in our lungs. It, it, it shapes how we think and how we live our lives. We assume if we can accumulate stuff, we could just get stuff, right? We can accumulate cars, and there's nothing wrong with cars or big homes or whatever. Money is not the problem. Can I get an amen to that? It's the, it's the, the love of money. 
that really becomes the problem and dehumanizes us and keeps us from experiencing fulfillment. But a lot of Americans, they believe in the gospel of self-fulfillment and self-actualization. What Paul is saying, hey, Jesus doesn't play that. Jesus is all about self-giving love. I love Philippians chapter 2. Many of you are familiar with it. 5 through 8, and I'll just summarize it. Paul says, hey, Jesus did not consider it robbery to be considered equal to God. But what, what did he do? He emptied himself. In the form of a servant, he became a human, became obedient to the point of death, and his father then exalted him. So you have this highest to lowest to highest pattern going on. What does Paul say? Paul is saying Jesus really didn't obsess about his divine status. Jesus wasn't worried about self-actualization. Jesus wasn't obsessed about climbing the social ladder what do we see happening in the kingdom of God? God comes down to us. And it's through this highest to lowest to highest that God makes everything right in our world. Everything is made right when we act on this pattern of poor excuse me, rich to poor to rich, high to low to high, when we act on that pattern that Jesus shows us, that's when we loose fresh power into our world. That's within the concept of generosity. That's when generosity begins to astonish people. I want to read a story really quick. This, this week, um, actually it was yesterday, I came across this story. Is it okay I read a story to you? I rarely do this, so bear with me. Um, but it, it really, I think, in, in microcosm shows what Paul is talking about when it comes to Jesus. So the story goes, it was a cold day, the kind you don't really want to have a long conversation outside with someone, especially with someone you don't really know. Can I get an amen? But we're still going to be generous and we're still going to talk to people, even though we're freezing. Let's go on. But that's exactly what happened to 20-somethings Lance and his wife Amy outside a restaurant in their town of Franklin, Tennessee. The two had just finished lunch and were walking to the car when they recognized a couple they had seen before at their church. They all stopped briefly and started talking. The issue of money came up as they chatted about a new financial small group class at their church. Soon Lance acknowledged that he and Amy had paid off $60,000 in debt, but still had $10,000 left to go. The older couple asked them what they would do when they were debt free. At first, Amy laughed about the trampoline they had promised their young kids. Don't get a trampoline. Don't get a trampoline, right? Too many broken, like, ankles and bloody noses. But then she confided that their real dream was to adopt another child. However, they were committed to be debt-free before they did so. Then quickly, the conversation shifted to lighter things, and before everyone knew it, it was over. Both couples went on their way. The next day, Lance got an email at work from the older couple asking, if they could come by his house to talk about something important. Lance was skeptical. Perhaps this is going to be some sort of pyramid marketing scheme, he thought. Still, he agreed to their request. He's a brave guy. After work, they all met at Lance and Amy's house and went through the obligatory small talk. But then the unknown couple dropped a bomb. They wanted to pay off Lance and Amy's $10,000 debt. So the young couple could adopt immediately. How do you spell your name, the older woman asked as she got out her checkbook and began writing. Lance thought, are you kidding me? Are you for real? Who does that? 
Who writes a check for 10000 to somebody they don't even know? Smiling, the couple told Lance and Amy, just, just don't tell anybody it was us. And please don't act weird towards us at church. And then they drove off. Lance and Amy stood there for 10 minutes in total shock. Then they cried and they screamed and they ran all over the yard and house. This is what generosity does to people. It was unbelievable. It was beyond belief. Nine months later, when they brought their new adopted daughter, it gets better, Myla home, they realized that the check the couple had given them was dated exactly nine months prior to Myla's due date. The $10,000 gift was made right at the time their daughter was conceived. As Lance recalled, it was like God was saying, I have a baby out there for you right now. I'm not waiting around another two years for, your, for you to pay off your debt. Lance and Amy decided, which is, I think is a good decision, that their encounter with the, the older uh, couple outside that downtown restaurant wasn't random at all. God had orchestrated everything, weaving their calling and journey together to write a beautiful story for his glory. Isn't that incredible? This, within our lived experience, within their lived experience, this is, this is generosity. And this is how generosity works. Now, how many of you would like to be on the receiving end like Lance and Amy? To receive that. But it was funny. The last few days, actually, when I read this, and I've been thinking about generosity, I'm like, you know what? That's amazing. And I'm glad we get to be on the receiving end so many times. But I'm at a point in my life, and I feel like the church, this church, what, we turned the corner. I got faith in you. God has faith in you. What is that? That we're not going to just uh, believe for God to do something just for us. I think in the faith that I have for my wife and I, faith that I have for Capital Church, as we move forward, as we begin to astonish the city over the next 10 years, I have faith that we're going to be like that older couple. That we're not going to be just on the receiving end. But we're going to be a blessing-only church where God is going to bless us so that we can be a blessing. This is why in Acts chapter um, uh, 20, verse 35, Paul says, it's more blessed to give. Can I, let me say that again. It's more blessed to give than to receive. What, what is Paul saying? Paul is, in, in a shorthand way, saying, man, it's more blessed to act on this pattern that Jesus has given us. He's given everything to us. And when you act on that pattern, that's where life is. That's where you'll find fulfillment. Man, if people decided to give their life to this extravagance, guess what would happen? You would not experience discontentment. You would not experience boredom. You wouldn't worry about, like, comparing yourself. Because this is what it means to be human. In the biblical thought world, what it meant to be human was to be made by God and to be blessed by God and to have that blessing flow through you. That's what it means to be human. That's just, I stripped down all the definitions of what it means to be human and we look at the biblical story, to be human is to be blessed by God, and that blessing is designed to flow through you. It's not just for you, it's to flow through you. The problem, though, and I have a problem with all of us, right? We all struggle with this. It's a daily fight, is that if we're not careful, we can dam up that blessing. 
We can stop that flow of blessing where that blessing simply just becomes about us, about our story, about what we want from it, right? And what happens is when you dam up or you stop that flow of blessing, you will, whether you like it or not, you will slowly and surely cease to be human. The seeds of dehumanization, what is found when we dam up the blessing of God from flowing through us. When we choose, when we make a decision to use what God wanted to use through us for our own sake, that's when you're going to experience the corruption of your heart and your mind and your soul. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Yet, okay, and I'm not hating on American culture. How many Americans do we have here? Come on, we love America, right? We love America. I love America. We are so blessed. Can I get an amen? So I'm not hating on American culture, but, man, the underlying assumption of Americans is, man, we're blessed and we're fulfilled when we receive. So what do we do? What's the logic that, that gives shape to how we think? And, and largely it's unconscious. What is it? Well, if we can just accumulate more stuff, there we can find fulfillment. Isn't it funny, in one, one uh, research nationwide survey uh, that was taken with a lot of college professors, your college professor, this does not apply to you, uh, but it, it came out after about a decade of research that um, with these college professors that economic professors were twice as, as more likely not to give to private charities. If you're an economic professor, this is, I'm sure it doesn't apply to you. They then continued to do research on like game theory, and lab research, and they, they came to the conclusion that uh, students who take an economics course post hoc behave more selfishly. What, what are we talking about? Well, to me, this is just the American story in microcosm, right? We plan not to be generous. We plan to consume. David Myers, he, he coined the phrase the American paradox. It's fascinating. The American paradox is we have, at the same time, soaring wealth. And at the same time, we have declining psychological states of happiness. Like he makes, his thesis is pretty simple. Hey, wealth and happiness, that's the word he uses. I don't like happiness because it's so subjective. I like the word joy. But he uses the word happiness. There's a weak, a profound Profoundly weak correlation between happiness and wealth. In other words, his conclusions, general conclusions, these are my words, having a sense of purpose is more important to joy than having prosperity. Having a sense of purpose is more important to joy than having prosperity. So Chris, are you hating on money? Come stop it. Come on, are, are you idealizing poverty? No, I'm not. What I'm saying is the love of money, it's the love of accumulating stuff. It's this idea, it's, it's, it's consumerism par excellence, that man, if I can consume stuff, consume simply means to exhaust, to burn, to destroy completely. If I can just get all the stuff and consume it, that's where I'll find the divine spark of life. And yet what's happened? We're left bankrupt in the wake of consumerism. People know in their bones, a boat, it, it ain't gonna make you happy. Man, we have bigger houses, but we have broken homes. 
And people, man, they don't know what to do about that. I remember when I first moved to my first house, my wife and I, actually my second house, it was a beautiful house, and we loved it. And I remember in about a month, I started finding things wrong with it. It wasn't quite perfect. It was almost perfect, but wasn't quite perfect. Can I just tell you something? A million dollars will be almost perfect, not quite though. And it will leave a hole in your soul. A billion dollars will do the same thing. Not quite. That house, that home, the stuff that you get, there's nothing wrong with it. But if you reduce what it means to be human, if you reduce fulfillment to getting stuff and accumulating stuff, you're going to find a hole in your soul. And you're not going to experience what God has for you. So, what does this lead to? What does consumerism lead to? Man, i got to get more stuff. What it leads to is one pastor calls it the scarcity cycle. Scarcity cycle is pretty simple. I'm just give me a couple more minutes, maybe five hours. Scarcity cycle is, uh, it's simple. Scarcity cycle basically states, it's rooted in a mindset that, okay, I'm going to receive my paycheck. Can I get an amen? So I receive my paycheck, and uh, then I plan to consume that paycheck. And then that leads me to not enough. And the logic or the rhetoric of not enough then leads me into anxiety and fear. And then I begin to live my life paycheck to paycheck. Again, if, if maybe you're in this cycle, there's no judgment. I'm just saying God wants us to be in a different cycle. So the cycle then, it just continues. You, you, you're afraid, you go from paycheck to paycheck, and then you receive your paycheck, and then you plan to consume, and you consume it all for yourself, and then it leads you into not enough, and it leads you back into fear. I think as Christians, if God wants us to be blessed, if what it means to be human is that God wants to bless us and that blessing is, des is designed to flow through us. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about money. I'm talking about resources. I'm talking about your time. I'm talking about your life. We are called to be a blessing. We're not called to live in scarcity. So if we're, if we're going to disrupt this cycle of scarcity, right, from not enough to fear, to receive, to consume, man, how, how do we disrupt that? Well, Paul gives us the answer in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. He writes, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully, everyone say bountifully, will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Can you keep it, guys, on verse 7? God loves a cheerful giver. Why does God love a cheerful giver? Because it's a reflection of who he is. Why does God want us not to sow sparingly but bountifully? That's who Jesus is. I am so glad God did not sow sparingly in my life. Lord, have mercy. I would not be here today. You would not be here today if God scrimped on you. I'm going to take a vacation. George, I'm going to hate on you. You're a frustrating individual, so I'm just going to sow a little bit of grace. God doesn't sow a little bit of grace. Man, he sows bountifully in our life. Why does God love a cheerful giver? Because that's a reflection of who he is. But here's the thing. Because God has created this, this world, and uh, he's created this out of love, uh, that means that we are free and authentic beings. God will never, because he is love. 
God will never force you to do anything. God's not going to force you to do anything today. He's not going to make you do something. He'll persuade you, right, because that's who God is. So when I'm talking about generosity today, I'm not, I'm not here saying you've got to do this or hell, fire, and brimstone is coming your way, right? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, hey, this is, if you want to be human, if you want to fulfill the call that God has for you, if you want to find, man, life and adventure, this is where it, it's at. Paul quotes Proverbs 22, verse 8 and 9. And uh, this is a Greek translation where he says, God loves a cheerful giver. The Hebrew translation is God loves and blesses a bountiful eye. The good-eyed human, the good-eyed person is blessed. And then he continues, and God is able. Everyone say able. Able to make all grace abound towards you. All grace. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he's distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He's quoting Psalm 112. He's telling us what the righteous man and woman is like. They are generous. And then he comes to verse 10. He quotes Isaiah 55. He goes, he who supplies seed to the sower. And Isaiah 55 is all about fresh act of new creation. God replaces thorn and thistle with cypress, come on, with myrtle trees. I don't even know what a myrtle tree, but it sounds nice. So that's the context. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us, check this out, will produce thanksgiving to God. He's saying that when you, when you become a part of this cycle of abundance and through the grace of God, you participate in his generosity, it leads to thanksgiving. It leads to astonishment. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of the service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity, everyone say generosity, and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. And we close with this. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I'm convinced we're not going to change the world through our preaching. And I believe in the primacy of preaching. We're not going to change the world through our worship. And I believe that we have a world-class worship team. We're not going to astonish our city because of, like, our moral goodness, right? The way we're going to astonish this city where it will lead to praise and it will lead to thanksgiving and it will transform the human heart and will cause people who are blind to see, will cause the glory of God to cover this city, that will happen when we practice astonishing generosity. So, in a nutshell, what's that cycle of abundance? It's when we receive. Now, this is where I'm going to get a little personal. And uh, I'm going to, give me, can you give me three more minutes? Uh, I'm not saying you have to do this. I've talked to really good friends of mine who we've had great conversations about this. They're wrong and I'm right. But I'm not forcing anybody to do this. But this is what my wife and I do. This is the first thing we receive from God. And the next thing we do is we give 10% of our income back to Jesus. Chris, that's so Old Testament. 
And we could talk about that later. I'm not going to give you, because it would take five hours, right, to talk to you about why I believe the tithe is theologically appropriate for post, this post-Easter world that we live in. I'm not going to do that today. I'm just going to say personally, this is why I do it. Personally, my wife and I, we give the tithe. That's the first thing we do because it reminds me that I'm not in charge. When I give 10%, in the Old Testament thought world, 10% represented 100%. So when, when I give a tithe, this is why I love giving. It's, it's a public declaration that Jesus, you're in charge, and everything I have is not mine. And it reminds me, it reminds me that God, everything I have is a gift. Everything that I have is all grace. Man, it sets my mind free, right? Man, it, it, it sets me straight. I'm, I, it, it ensures that I'm not going to live a crooked life because I don't trust myself. Man, you would think that after like, what, 20 years of pastoring that, Chris, you should have your act together. I have most of my act together. I have most of my act together, but I don't trust me. And every time, and I'm not doing bad stuff. I think I'm a really good guy. But every time I give my tithe, man, it sets me straight. And then what happens is my wife and I, we plan. We've been doing this this last year. We've been restructuring our budget so we can plan to be generous. Plan to be generous. Let me just say this really quick. Uh, Many of us were in the spontaneous giving or ad hoc giving phase, which is really good. Can I get an amen? Meaning neighbors, they're going through an issue. You have extra money, you give to them. That's awesome. Maybe something in the city, a tragedy happens, you give to that. Maybe something happens across the globe and, and you give to that. That's wonderful, and I want you to continue to do that. You have extra money. But I want us to move from just spontaneous giving to planning to give. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 8 says this, but he who is noble or he who is generous plans generous things. And on generous things, he stands, he endures, he remains. Nothing's going to touch him. He's going to, man, he's going to overcome every, every circumstance. Come on, he's a winner. That's exactly what Isaiah is saying because he plans to do generous things, which is a hard thing to do. But my wife and I, and again, take this for what it is. We've been planning to do generous things because planning to be generous, to be a blessing person is not going to happen automatically. I don't trust anybody who says, I'm going to be a generous person, but never makes a plan. You lie to yourself. Generous people plan to do generous things. Now, please understand, I'm not, this doesn't come in the form of an indictment. I believe in this church. I believe this church has turned a corner. I believe God's going to bless us so that we can be a blessing to this city. You're going to be blessed. Your kids are going to be blessed. Come on. This church is going to be blessed. But we're not going to use the blessing that God gives us for us. God does not give us strength for status. We didn't do that Easter egg hunt so, oh, they're the cool church. And all the other churches are going to get jealous and they're going to talk about us because we're the best, right? No, we didn't do that for status. We did that Easter egg hunt for service. Not status for service. 
God's going to bless us so we can serve the city. But we got a plan on being a blessing. Man, I wish I woke up in the morning and clothes just hopped on my body. It doesn't happen, right? Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, you got to put on kindness. you got to put on love. you got to make a decision. You can't just like accidentally fall into being a blessing only person. you got to plan to do generous things. Unfortunately, a lot of people plan to consume. We're turning a corner as a church. We're planning on being generous to this city. Man, I, I have, God has been doing something in my heart the last few weeks. I wish I could share this with you. The, how do I say this? I can't say it all because that would be getting the carpet for the horse. I just, I want to bless this city in a way that would just be like insane. I want people to say capital church people are flipping insane. That's what I want them to say. And the way we're going to soften the hearts of people in this city is not through, oh, intellectually, you, this is why we do what we do. No, they're going to they're gonna be softened as they see us live out a generous life. So we receive this, this cycle of abundance. We receive, we give a tithe. If you have questions about this, you can certainly talk about this. I'm not like judging anybody who has concerns about this. This is just what my wife and I believe. This is what our staff believes. This is what many of you believe. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. And then we move into planning to be generous. And then we give. And guess what happens? God increases in insane ways. Now, let me say, generosity is not a zero-sum game where you give and you lose. When you give, you always win. Now, we might give a large, substantial amount of money. That doesn't mean we'll get that exact amount right away. It's actually happened. We've actually got that amount right away. Some of you have experienced that before. You gave money and actually God multiplied when you received. Sometimes we don't get that. But that doesn't matter. It's not about receiving. It's about sacrificial giving because when we act on the pattern of sacrificial giving, we are most like Jesus. And when we're most like Jesus, that's when we loose the power and the anointing of God into our city. And that's when God takes over. That's when, come on, that's when God is loose in our world and through our lives. And when we give sacrificially, we receive. And there's more grace. And there's more grace. Why? Because we've made the decision to let the blessing of God flow through us. We're not bottom to the top people. We're not rags to riches people. Come on, we're riches to rags to riches. What does that mean? God wants to use his blessing to flow through our lives for the sake of people in this city. If you don't like that, it's fine. I love you. You are amazing. But that's what our church is about. Well, that's what your church is about. That's your style. Stop it. That's what the Christian story is about. That's the top button. You get this right. You, you live yourself into extravagance. Everything else will be straightened out in your life. I promise you. The problem is, is that we just live crooked lives and I'm done with it. I'm not going to live a crooked life. I'm making a decision to plan to be generous. Amen.
I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.